The resume has become a staple for doing life in our world. For almost any type of job, one has to fill out a preformed resume or provide his or her own to a prospective employer. People also share their resume or their profiles on platforms like LinkedIn or CareerBuilder. Sites sometimes will help you write your own resume. Resumes are very individualized, aren't they, um, in our culture? We don't list our parents on our resume. It's probably not a good idea. Or talk about our family history on the resume. Um, if that is done, it all comes through the interview process. And perhaps when we're asked about a connection that the interviewer may have with us through someone else we both mutually know, And then in those instances, it may pay, literally, right, that you know someone who may have put in a good word for you. Sometimes it uh, depends upon who you know more than what you know. But in the public introduction, on the piece of paper or on the Internet, the resume is about us. So we have on there our address, our education, previous work experiences, skills, awards, affiliations, etc. In the ancient world, the society was much more communal and familial. And there was nothing in that world like what we have today in the use of resumes. But it didn't mean that people didn't have resumes. It was just different. People were introduced to others and recommended to others in a way that was appealing to those cultures in which they lived. We find that way in relationship to Jesus coming into the world in the early part of two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. We call them genealogies, but as uh, has been pointed out by others, we should not see these simply as genealogies, but these are resumes for a communal culture, introducing Jesus to us and introducing his family, introducing the roots that are there. So as we think about this idea of a resume, at Christmas each year we sometimes revisit these genealogies. We always love when it's time to preach on genealogies in the church. We love genealogies, don't we? No, we don't. Because we're not used to them. We're not used to the importance of them. Our culture doesn't work this way. And so that's why when you come to First Chronicles, you're reading through your Bible and you're doing great, and you come to First Chronicles... And you have all of these genealogies. And you're drinking lots of coffee trying to stay awake and trying to pronounce these names in the genealogy. Sometimes people give up. Don't give up. The genealogies are important. And they're important. They should be important for us as they were to the first readers, perhaps with other applications for our world that is less communal than theirs. And so today, as we begin this Christmas season over the next few weeks, I want us to spend a few moments this morning looking at Jesus' resume and seeing what we can learn from it in relationship to ourselves. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Now, if you are pregnant or if you have a baby uh, coming uh, sometime in the future, it's a great place to get some names here uh, for uh, both boy names and girl names here. There's five girls and lots of boys mentioned, so let's read verses 1 through uh, 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. So he is connected to two of the most important people in all of Jewish history, the son of Abraham, the son of David. This guy has a great resume going. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, she was a sweetheart, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, I'll tell you what she did later, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, she was a sweetheart too, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, there's a little sordid tale captured in that sentence. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, the Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. That's where we got one of our names, so see, there is uh, truth, there's some good names here. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The genealogy that we find here in Matthew follows Jesus' lineage through Joseph, who while he was his legal father, obviously was not his biological father, for Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Matthew is very careful to construct the language to tell us that in verse 16. So we've been talking about the father of, the father of, the father of. We come to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. But it doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now as you read through this, it reminds us of the tribes in Jesus' background, the individuals, the families, some stories, all of that that preceded his birth. But beyond that, as we read through this list of Jesus' resume, we're reminded of some bigger, important matters for us as God's people. And maybe you're not yet a believer, but some wonderful truths here for you to consider in your life as well as what God is trying to do and what he's trying to say to us by beginning the gospel, this good news of the gospel of Matthew, by giving us this genealogy of Jesus. First of all, as we interact with this, uh, this resume and look at this listing of people, we're reminded that God has a plan. This resume covers a long period of years. It goes back thousands of years to Abraham. It begins with Abraham. And it was to Abraham that a promise was made that through his descendant, ultimately God would bless the entire world. 
You remember? So it starts out with Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of Isaac. And that's reminding us of a great story back in the book of Genesis, if you would look there to chapter 22, where God made a promise to Abraham. He had called Abraham and told him to leave where he was living to make his way to the Middle East. And ultimately, he says, through you, I'm going to bless all of the world through your seed, through your descendant. It's going to come through you. And so that descendant is birthed or born. His name is uh, Isaac. And we see in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, God reiterates what he's going to do. In verse 17, he says, I will surely bless you. And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, which Israel would do after the uh, Exodus. And they came up out of, uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus and took the promised land. And notice verse 18, he says, And through your offspring, your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's everybody. So this goes beyond Abraham, does it not? All the nations are going to be blessed through you because you have obeyed me. Well, how's that going to take place? It's going to take place through this descendant that would lead in a line down to this one called Jesus who would come into the world. And so it is through his line the Messiah would emerge. And so what we see in this listing of all of these names over the generations here is that God has a plan. And that plan comes to, to uh, full fruition in the birth of Jesus Christ. God's plan unfolds, and the pinnacle of it, the centerpiece of it, is all tied up in Jesus who comes into the world. And so, if you'll notice back in verse 16 and verse 17, it says, In Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Nobody else is given a title through this. We just have their names. But notice when we come to Jesus. Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the what? The Messiah. Some translations have the Christ. The Christ would be Christos, talking about the, the Son of God in that sense, that he is the anointed one of God. That would have connected with Gentiles. Messiah, referring to the Jews, their one who would come that they looked for because of the promises of God in the Old Testament. And so he comes into the world. And so we see in this resume that God's plan for this whole world centers in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' resume reveals to us that the center of everything that God is doing in the world is tied up with God providing a Savior for those who will be his people out of every tribe and tongue and people group on this planet. God is building a family. And not everybody's part of the family. And we'll talk about that as we go through this, uh, this sermon. But God's building a new family. And ultimately, He's going to build for us a new heaven and a new earth. All of life is not to be consumed with what is here. Because this is not ultimately the point of things. This is the point to get us to the next point. You know, sometimes in this world, we get our focus overly centered here. And we, you know, do. There's the reality that we do have to do life here. We must raise kids, pay bills, deal with health issues, do our jobs, work through disagreements, pursue an education or job training. 
And then beyond those matters that are close to home, we are citizens of a nation where huge geopolitical things happen over which we really have little or no control. And at times, with all the confluence of those factors in this life, it sometimes seems pretty overwhelming, even at times discouraging. And furthermore, we come to let some of these things take too big of a place in our lives or have the wrong order of love in our lives, and we have things oriented in a way that they ultimately should not be. We see this in some of the overreactions people have had to life's events, and even in recent days we've seen it in the election year. Many people, even Christians, acted as if everything in their lives and our futures depended upon the outcome of who won the election earlier this month. A lot of people lost friends over. Some of you got defriended on Facebook, right? Some of you had an interesting Thanksgiving dinner, heated. And since the election, we've seen reactions from protest, people threatening the lives of the electors who will soon be casting their ballots for president. We've seen it in colleges providing safe places, counseling, coloring book therapy, and massages for students who are so upset about the outcome of the race. I wish I'd have got that in college. But Jesus' resume, the introduction of Jesus who came in fulfillment of what God promised reminds us that there is a plan of God that sits above all of the plans of the human race. And the central thing that God is doing is tied up in this person of Jesus and that ought to have our most focused attention as we live our lives. The plan of knowing that is key to grasping what is taking place in human history and in our own personal lives to know what this plan is bound up in Jesus. Now we see this not only from the beginning of the resume with the promise to Abraham bringing us to the middle of history when God takes on humanity in Jesus, but we also see this playing out in the culmination of human history and the life of Jesus who is born, who grows up, who's crucified, who's buried, who rises again, who ascends. But I want you to think about something else. If you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we can see that all of our personal stories, all of the geopolitical story, everything about this planet ends up having to come to grips with Jesus because he's the center of everything. And everything is moving toward God's purpose in relationship to Jesus. And so when we come to the book of Revelation chapter 19, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we're coming to the point of Christ's return. In Revelation 19, 1 and 2, it says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. If you go down to verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. And with justice He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, 
white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what we see here as you continue to read through this is when Christ comes back, all of the geopolitical events that will eventually culminate in this, that the political order and the religious order outside of the church will all become arrayed against Jesus Christ and he will come back and rule and ultimately there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then furthermore, all of our individual stories about how we're living our lives right now in raising our kids, doing our jobs, seeking to be accountable, all of that is going to be swept up and wrapped up in the end also in relationship to Jesus. Because as you read on down through here, not only does he bind Satan, destroy the, uh, the uh, generals and the mighty riders of horses, of all the flesh of people arrayed against him in judgment. But if you go down to chapter 20, when we come to verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then it says, The dead were judged according to what they had what done as recorded in the books. And everybody's there. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. There's no place to hide. And each person was judged according to what they had done. You see, all the political powers that will come to be arrayed against Jesus and his people will suddenly come to their end. Judgment will come in which his people will be shielded from God's wrath. In which all injustices that we suffer in this life as God's people will be dealt by with by the one who sits on the throne. And we, his people, will be rewarded according to our faithfulness. Which reminds me that as I live here, I am not simply raising children. I am not simply doing a job, preparing a career, career building a resume, as you may be doing, or building a marriage. But I am doing all of these things now in light of this one who has come in the center of history and whom I've come to know. God has a plan. And it's centered in Him. And everything on this planet gets wrapped up in how it is related to Him, both geopolitically and down to my individual life. And in my individual life, I'm reminded then that I'm to be doing all of these things that are my responsibilities in light of Jesus. And someday that I will stand before Him and I want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's why Paul says in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, a wonderful reminder of what we're talking about here. When Paul the Apostle says in Colossians 3 verses 23 and 24, he says to us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. That is working for Jesus, not for human masters since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Notice this next verse. Would you read the last part of this verse with me, would you? Colossians 3, the end of verse 24. Are you there? It is, let's read it out loud. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so God has a plan. And Jesus' resume reminds us that we should learn to rest in Him, keep all things in life in perspective in relationship to Jesus because He is the center of history and He will be ultimately the Lord and the climax of all of history. 
There's a second thing, second thing we learn about Jesus here and us in this resume, and that is that God has power to fulfill his plan. We see in this resume that not only did God have a plan, but he has the power to bring all of his plans to pass. You know, within Jesus' resume, there are so many stories captured in the names of the people listed here. One thing you'll note is that there are non-Jews in his heritage, which we'll come back to in a bit. Remember God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And so we see in his resume and his genealogy, non-Jews mentioned. We'll revisit that in a bit. And if you think about it along the way, here God had to superintend what took place over 42 generations here. You notice verse 17, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now think about that, how much time that is. You know, if left to simple human power and circumstances, how much could have gone wrong in relationship to derailing the coming of the Messiah? 42 generations, and this had to unfold. Somebody had to oversee it. And have the power to make all of it come to pass in the midst of all types of free human decisions. And that was that God himself had the power. Now think about this. If we go back to Abraham, we're immediately reminded of how threatening things could be to the plan. The Bible says back in the genealogy, Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Just in that sentence, we're reminded of how threatening this could be. Do you recall what happened? Go back to Genesis chapter 21. In Genesis chapter 21, we see that Isaac is born. God's been promising Abraham this descendant. Abraham tries to solve it himself because he doesn't think, or Sarah, that's really coming to pass as fast as it should. That's where Hagar and Ishmael come to into play in the scripture but then God finally gives Isaac now does anybody remember how old Abraham was when this uh, came about he was a hundred years old and she wasn't far behind him this is a miracle that this this boy is born and uh, probably not going to happen again right hundred years old so in Genesis 21, it says in verse 1, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. So there he is. This is a miracle. And then we come to chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, if we grasp what is happening here, we should be filled with horror. The only biological heir of the line of the Messiah is threatened. He's threatened by God himself. God is testing Abraham. This is the one God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendant. And he puts Abraham to the test of his faith. Abraham passes the test. He obeys God. He takes his son up to sacrifice him. But before he does, God provides a substitute, which points to the one who will come to take our place. 
But I want you to notice something about Abraham in this event that reveals to us not only his faith, but what was at stake. If you notice in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5, Abraham's going up to Mount Moriah to obey God, to sacrifice Isaac. And notice his trust in the Lord in these, these words. Verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And notice what he says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. I don't think Abraham's just trying to uh, be uh, coy here so they you know, won't think something is up. I think this is a statement of faith that he knows that God's going to provide. What is Abraham believing? Well, if you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 in verses uh, 17 through 19, the writer of Hebrews tells us more about what was going on in Abraham's mind and his heart as he's going up to sacrifice his son. It says in verse 17 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. That would have wiped out the line. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But notice what's Abraham trusting in. He's trusting in the power of God to fulfill what he said he would do. Notice the next verse. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham trusted in God's power to accomplish his plan. And then as we follow the genealogy down through time, the resume of Jesus, God overshadows all of that to accomplish his plan. He had the power even to raise Isaac from the dead. Nothing was going to stop God's word, his promise of what he was going to do in blessing the world through Abraham's seed. And so from that point, as we interact with the other names here, this plot unfolds in all types of twists and turns. Because this resume is filled with humans, their stories are filled at times with great heroism and awful sin for which they were responsible. And yet nothing would derail the destination due to God's power to make it come to pass. The God of the Bible has power to take care of all things and to accomplish all of his decrees. And by the way, that would say to you and me, the God of the Bible has the power to take care of my life and everything about me and about my future. If he can oversee 42 generations to get us down to the Messiah... He can take care of me. He has a plan. And he has the power to accomplish his plan. You know, right after the election, I guess it's on my mind somewhat, uh, President-elect Trump visited the White House. We all remember the infamous meeting there with President Obama. And they were all chummy, for which we were thankful. And, you know, he is uh, about to take, you hear this language, the levers of power. And people who agree with some or all of what he wants to do that we know so far, some are all excited about the power he will have on day one to rescind certain executive orders that affects the federal bureaucracy that President Obama passed, just with the stroke of a pen. And by the way, I like fountain pens, and if any of you ever have a way to uh, get me a presidential fountain pen, <laughs> I'm joking. You know, where they sign the bills and stuff. Have you ever noticed how they do that? They take like 50 pens to sign their name. There's a little jot here. And, they put, I don't want that there. and then they get the other one and make a little bit more of their name. No wonder we never get anything done in government. 
But then, seriously, back to this. People are all excited, you know, if, you're, if people that are for what he's wanting to do. To, uh, with the stroke of a pen, just to make a lot of things change. And then the power he's going to have to direct legislation through the Congress and all the House and the Senate all being held by the same party. He will be known when he is sworn in in January as the most powerful man in the world. That's what our president is known as being. The most powerful person on the planet. He will lead the most powerful economic and military power that has ever existed on this planet. Nothing like this country has ever existed on the earth. And the economic and the military power our nation has. And yet we must remember always about any of our leaders. And I hope our leaders learn to remember this about themselves. That their power is very limited. And their power sits beneath a greater power that directs the affairs of men. And he is in control. And we should be humble before him. Knowing that he has a plan, he has the power to unfold it, both geopolitically and in my life. As you live your life and as I live my life, we need to be reminded always of this greater power that is ordering our lives. You remember what the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 9? It says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. It doesn't matter how much you plan your life. God Almighty rules over our lives. His plan is the ultimate plan. He is in charge. His will shall be done. And so we need to live in humility, but also in great joy as believers in knowing that I can rest in a God who has a plan for me and has the power to accomplish it. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, He has the power because I've trusted in Jesus that even though I still mess up and I still sin, Someday when I stand before Jesus, the Bible says he's able to present me faultless before his throne. Isn't that wonderful? He has the power. The Bible says that what he begins in us, he shall carry it forth to the day of completion. This God has great power. And this genealogy reminds us of his power to direct the affairs of humanity. Forty-two generations until Jesus shows up on the scene. I don't know what you're feeling in this season of your life. You may feel alone. You may feel forgotten. You may feel like things are out of control. You may feel like your life is coming apart at the seams. You, you know, he's a very committed Christian. You can get to those points in your life. But we're reminded in looking at Jesus' resume that God has a great plan and he has the power to direct and fulfill his plan. And if we will trust him... He will prove to be true in our lives even if we have to walk through some very dark periods in life. It's like GPS. If you think about GPS in your car, now we have it on our phones, right? And if we trust our GPS, there are times I have no idea where I am in my car. I'm just tooling along and I'm listening for her voice, right? I understand you can make her voice British. I haven't done any of that, different things. I need to change the voice, but just follow the GPS. And if I follow the GPS, I usually turn out where I'm supposed to be. The GPS is not perfect. I've been lost on GPS. But God is perfect. And if I will follow him and trust him, he will always get me 
to where he wants me to be in his plan because he has the power to do it. And I hope you'll be encouraged by that when you read the genealogies of Jesus. I want the genealogies to mean something to you, not just in the list of names and how all this unfolds. I want you to see what God, God's saying something to you and to me through this. I have a plan and I have the power to make it come to pass. Apply this to your life. And then the third thing I want us to see is that as we read this resume of Jesus, God's plan is grounded in grace. That is that God wants to lavish something upon us as a gift that we do not deserve, we cannot earn. That's what salvation, that's what a relationship with God is all about. It's being a recipient. Receiving His gift, His grace. I love this resume of Jesus because it is unlike other resumes you might would read from the ancient world. And perhaps that's been pointed out to you before. I preached a sermon on that here some years ago about the genealogy and looking at some of the people in it, particularly focusing on the women. And just starting with that, if you think about Jesus' resume, it's very unusual they have women listed. In a patriarchal society, women would not normally be listed in your resume or genealogy. And yet here we have five women listed. And further, three of the five women mentioned were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And so you read the names here of Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. One was a Moabite. Two were Canaanites who were historically, the Canaanites especially, the enemies of Israel. But here they are in Jesus' family tree. These people were unclean to the Jews. They were racially unclean. And they were unable to go and worship in the temple. But here they are in the line of Jesus. And both in the actions of some of the women and some of the men, this genealogy is filled with sinners who did unsavory things. And so you read about Tamar here. Do you remember what she did? She acted like a prostitute, dressed up and tricked her father-in-law who didn't recognize her into having sex with her. And a child came out of that. And then we have Rahab here mentioned. And she was Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. But she turned and joined Israel and put faith in Yahweh and followed the Jews as she watched her city crumble to the ground. But she was Rahab the harlot. And then we have here in the text, you remember, oh, King David. Isn't this wonderful? We come down to it. Glorious King David. But notice what comes out in relationship to David in the text. Not his finest hour. Notice it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The mother is Bathsheba. She is not mentioned by name. But do you remember her story? David saw her, desired her. She was a married woman. He had her brought to him. He had relationships with her. And then he had her husband killed to cover it up. So we have adultery and murder here with King David. And he's responsible for those actions. He suffered a lot for those actions. And yet God's plan cannot be thwarted even in the midst of human evil. God was working his plan to shed his grace upon us. So we find this here in the family tree of Jesus. Talk about a dysfunctional family line. If you think yours is messed up, read this one. And yet, here they are in the family of the Messiah, 
Messiah who came to save what? Sinners out of every tribe and tongue. They are in this line, these individuals, by the grace and the mercy of God and their trust in a promise of a Savior. You see what we have here in Jesus' resume is a wisely constructed, constructed over 42 generations. You have an invitation by God saying, I want you in my family. That's what you have here. It's introducing Jesus, this promise to Abraham, through whom all the nations would be blessed, one who came and said, I came into the world to save sinners. And all this is beautifully put together in God's sovereign way to say, I want you in my family. And you can become a part of my family. It's a gift to you by grace if you simply will have trust, exercise faith. The key is to trust in him and the promises attached to him, that is Jesus. And by trusting in Jesus, we can all become part of Abraham's family. We can all get in this line of the Messiah. And so I take you back with me to the scriptural call to worship this morning in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Do you recall what we read? Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Paul says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by what? Faith. And he announced the what? Gospel. In advance to who? Abraham. So in Abraham getting this message, this is God's promise for us. The good news preached to Abraham that comes to full fruition in Jesus. That I'm going to bless all the nations. And I invite you to be part of my family. How did Abraham get in the family? The scripture says here that he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those... Verse 9, who rely on what? Faith. Are you all awake? I know it was another late football game. My team was smarter. They played in the afternoon. And I'm more awake. But hang with me. Because I was up late. So notice verse 9. So through Those who rely on what? Faith. Are blessed along with Abraham, the man of what? Faith. And if you'll turn back to Hebrews chapter 11 as we wrap this up, you can see how all this fits together. So we read about Abraham's faith, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, we read more about the faith of Abraham. That uh, verses 8 through 11. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, he makes his home where God tells him to make it. And it says he was looking in verse 10 for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And this is by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children. This is about Isaac. And verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. If you go down to verse 31, we find this prostitute Rahab in the Hall of Fame of Faith. This Gentile is as by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so as you read through this whole chapter here of chapter 11, 
We see these people had faith. It was in that promise given to Abraham. The gospel preached to him that I'm going to bless the world through this seed. Have faith in him. And so he had faith. Sarah had faith. Rahab is listed as having faith. And verse 13 says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. That is, that these were people who were looking for the Savior and for that new heaven and new earth that is to come. And so this genealogy, this resume, is God giving to us the picture of saying, you can get in the line by faith as well. And so today, if you're here and you've not trusted in Christ, God made you and He desires for you to be listed in His family. And as we repent and trust, we're adopted into His family by grace. These people were adopted by grace. They were in the bloodline, but you and I can get in the bloodline by getting under the blood of Jesus. And He has the power to save you and to deliver you. And He has the power to lead you through life, even taking the difficult things and working them for your good. And He will take care of you if you'll give your life for Him. If He's able to direct 42 generations and to bring this to pass, the perfect time, He's able to take care of you in your life. And you can rest in Him. And if you're not a Christian today, you ought to give your life to Jesus. He invites you to do so and to find rest in Him. One other thing about the genealogy I want to say before we sing in just a moment and Tim Keller brings this out about the generations here you'll notice it says here that in the genealogy we have uh, 14 generations from Abraham to David 14 from David to the exile 14 from the exile to Christ makes a lot about these numbers here so that's 42 is that right 14 generations now how many sevens is that for you math geniuses in here Six, thank you. Glad you got it right. There's a whole lot of people listening. So, six sevens here, right? And then Jesus comes on the scene, and we begin the seventh seven. And Tim Keller points out that in this genealogy, then God is also telling us that Jesus is ultimately where we can have peace, because you understand this idea of seven is very important. In the Bible, the number seven is significant because as Genesis tells us, God rested from his created work on the seventh day. The Sabbath day, one day in seven, is the day of rest. But that symbolism goes farther. In the Mosaic Law, every seven years, the farmer was to let the land lie to give it a chance to replenish its nutrients. And so the seventh year represented rest. And finally, we're told in Leviticus 25 that the last year of the seventh period of seven years, the 49th year, was to be a jubilee. And in that year, all the slaves were to be freed and all debts were to be forgiven. All the land and all the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. The seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbath, was a foretaste of the final rest that we will have when God renews the earth. So what is God saying? He orchestrates this to come down to the point of saying in Jesus Christ. This is where ultimate rest is found. Give your life to Him. If you're here today as a Christian, you've trusted Him, you may be in some tough circumstances. I hope this text can help renew your strength today. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your hope. Serve in light of the future of this God who has a plan for you. And maybe it's a plan right now to be in a dark valley, but 
He has the power to get you to where he needs you to be. Your job is to trust him and to obey him, as is my job. If you're here today as well and you need a family to join in in a physical way, a visible family of the body of Jesus, we invite you to become a part of Concord by transfer of your membership or a statement of your faith or to follow Christ in baptism if you need to do that. Our hymn of commitment this morning is I Surrender All. Let's stand and we'll sing and you respond as God so leads you and I hope that this genealogy will be something precious to you in days ahead. Father, thank you for the resume of Jesus that, Lord, communicates to us your plan and your power and your mercy and your grace to sinners like us, to a sinner like me. Thank you, Lord, that by faith, some years ago, repentance, I became part of your family line. And as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is no longer ashamed to call us his brothers. He's come in human flesh and made us his family when we trust in him. And I just pray, Lord, that every person in this room will make sure that by faith they have trusted in Jesus, the center of all human life and history, the center, Lord, through whom we can only have eternal life, that, God, they would trust in him. I pray you would encourage us today, Lord, if we are downcast and tried and tempted, facing difficulties, to know that you have a plan and you will carry it out by your power if we will keep trusting in you. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for your marvelous grace. Lord, for giving us eternal life. We pray in this month, God, that we would be busy telling people about the wonderful gift that came in history in Jesus of Nazareth. Bless us now as we sing this time of commitment. We pray that proper commitments will be made in Jesus' name.